Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Victoria! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! Welcome to Rex Factory, reviewing all the kings and queens of England, from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. And this week, Victoria. Indeed, we've had uh, rather an extended break, mm. our longest one. Uh, apologies if you've been kept waiting, but we had the fun of the Olympics. We did, and Paralympics. Paralympics, you saw gold medals every time you went. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Well, for yeah. Britain, obviously. Yeah. Um, but also, I should say, apart, another reason for this is that there's a lot to do for Victoria. Yeah, she kept a diary her entire reign, you say? She did indeed. Um, from about 1832, when mm. she was younger, about 2,500 words per day. What? That she used to write, um, 60 million in total, roughly. If she was a novelist, this would have equated to 700 volumes for her complete wow. works at a rate of one novel per month. 2,000 words a day? That's phenomenal. It is. And she sent a couple of letters per week, sometimes per day, from 1858 to 1901, and the originals are bound in 60 volumes. Right. So that's separate to her journal. Her journal, two and a half thousand words a day, a couple of letters a week. So this would be quite short then, presumably. All she did was write. Well, she did a lot of writing, but there was a lot of other stuff okay. going along as well. So there's lots and lots of writing, which is nice, because it means we know Victoria better than we know mm. anyone else previously. And indeed, the way that she wrote was good, because she emphasised her feelings. So she underlined words, put things in capital letters... Lots of exclamation marks. Yeah. So when you're reading it, you can hear exact... Well, you can't hear her voice, mm. but you can hear very much how you would speak it. So this is going to be part one, probably of four episodes. Four big ones. Four biggies. The way that we're doing it is we're doing two episodes, which is biography. Is this pre and post Albert? Pre and post Albert. So this is part one, which is 1817 to 61. Next time will be 1861 to 1901. Mm. Third episode will be sort of Prime Ministers and events. Yeah. Because there's a lot of this actual stuff that happens that we're not going to feature in the next two episodes because we're just looking at her life yeah. from a more personal yeah. perspective. And then episode four, we'll actually review her. Okay. Before we get on to Victoria, however, we'll just note thank you very much to everybody that's been messaging us whilst we've been away. Oh, yeah. Facebook, uh, Rex Factor page. Uh, Twitter, we are at Rex Factor Pod. You can email us, Rex Factor Podcast at hotmail.com. Or leave a comment on the website. Um, I thought I'd pick up, as we talked about the Olympics, on Facebook. There was a discussion around uh, what Olympic event certain yeah. monarchs would mm. enter into. Yep. So some of the better ones. Uh, Jeremy Hoffman suggested that Edgar the Peaceable would be the Cox in rowing. Yes, very good. Because, of course, when he got rowed along for his coronation. Get a silver medal, though. Yeah. <laughs> Edward I and Edward IV would do basketball, Jane Sabatini suggested, because both very tall, yeah. tall chaps. Um, someone sent in the, from the Edward II blog, uh, blog spot by Catherine Warner a quote from a man, Robert of Reading, in relation to Edward II, mm. um, who went on holiday in the Fens so he might refresh his soul with many waters. What does that mean? Swimming. 
Oh, right. Um, and afterwards, he then later set off with all speed, he and his silly company of swimmers, for the Parliament which he had ridiculously caused to be summoned to Lincoln. <laughs> so he swam. He, he, swam, did, he, he did okay. some swimming, and then he went off with his swimmers, running off to Lincoln. Henry VIII, tennis. Clearly. Uh, a great suggestion, uh, Matthew Constable, Charles II, 10-metre air pistol. Why is that? Not because he was particularly proficient at shooting, but because this event is on the first day... Minimum effort, you just have to stand there shooting, which meant that you could just stand about, shoot a few things, and then pass then it the next a, two Yeah, weeks. exactly. Yeah. Um, Dean Owen suggested William III would have been doing the Winter Olympics, because he's a penguin. Of course he would, yeah. William yeah. IV, the Sailor King, sailing, mm-hmm. the Ben Ainsley of the Rex Actor Troupe. Uh, Katie Micklethwaite suggested that Harold II and William II, whatever they do, they should steer clear of archery events. Dangerous, very dangerous for them. And she also suggested that Oliver Cromwell would try to have had the whole thing cancelled. Quite right. Um, I would like to suggest Edward I for heptathlon, clear, though, um, decathlon, sorry. <laughs> for heptathlon, because he's a okay. big guy. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> no, because he's the best all-round athlete. <laughs> We've also had quite a few uh, responses to our last episode, which was William IV. Oh, pineapple head. Oh, pineapple Piney. head. And it's fair to say, I think, everyone seems to have agreed with our decision to give him the Rex Factor. I thought it yeah. might have been controversial, I but thought no. it was, well, yeah. Won a lot of people over. Uh, Bridget Grimwood... It uh, says, I live in Adelaide in South Australia, which was said is named after his, uh, his wife, his Adele. queen. Uh, the main street through the city is called King William Street, and there's a lovely statue dedicated to him near the Parliament House. Thanks for bringing him to life. Absolutely hilarious guy. He would suit life in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Deborah Grant said, if you'd asked me before the podcast if William IV had any chance of getting the Rex Fed, I would have said, no way. I would have said, Who? Exactly. <laughs> However, I was amazed as I listened. I totally agree that he deserved it. It appears William is a good name for an English monarch. Only Rufus failed to get the Rex Factor. Edgar the Peaceful was your only wrong decision. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> I take it all back. She also said she remembered there was a while ago we asked um, the issue of British slang mm. and whether people understood it. And she said that here in the States we wouldn't ever say that somebody was chuffed. But she was able yeah, to work out what it was. Right. Uh, pleased, satisfied. And uh, Janelle said that for the UK, William IV was a perfect rebound lover, kind, funny and lovable, so when it came to walk down the aisle with Victoria, they were ready to swear for better, for worse, for life, richer and poor, etc. Well, Back they had the to, because it was a blooming long time. Exactly. So that takes us very nicely on to Victoria herself. Okay. She's born in 1819, the daughter of Prince Edward, the Duke of Kent, and Princess Victoria of Saxe-Coburg and Strathern. And she becomes queen in 1837, so she's 18 years old when she becomes queen. Right. Which means that she's the youngest person to ascend to the throne since Edward VI, the son of Henry VIII. That? Re- oh, yeah. Right, OK. Well, that's good that it's her entire adult life. Mm. Mm. Um, and in terms of relationship to Elizabeth II, really coming down now, she is the great-great-grandmother. That is close. That's really good. And have we got one that finishes in, the 19, in 1901? It's exactly. Amazing. amazing. Now... You may have noticed, if you're being observant, that I said at the start the episode is 1817, but Victoria was born in 1819. Because we're going to start her story before she's born. And we're going to go back to the reign of George III. Oh, OK. <laughs> um, so, background to this, George III is suffering from his madness mm. in 1817. The Prince Regent, the future George IV, isn't very popular, and he's got one daughter, Princess Charlotte. Mm. She's 21 years old, married to a man called Leopold of Saxe-Coburg-Saalfeld, who will later become the King of Belgium. She was pregnant, everything seemed to be going well, but sadly she gave birth to a stillborn baby. Um, it saw that she was okay, so Leopold went to bed, took some opiates to help him sleep. Mm. As, but you then, do. as you do. <laughs> but then uh, Charlotte fell ill. 
So Leopold's physician, uh, Baron Stockmar, struggled to get Leopold to wake up, couldn't, because yeah. all the opiates, went back to, to see Charlotte and told him they'd made her tipsy, because they were giving her some brandy to try and yeah. ease things off. He went back to try and get Leopold up again, heard her calling, Stocky, Stocky, ran back to see her, and she died. Of what? And the, well, it was, it was a difficult birth, and... Oh, yeah. Just complications. They yeah. didn't use the forceps to remove the child, oh. which might have helped. Bleeding. That's nasty. Very nasty, but also very sad, of course. She was very popular. As you said, there was post-war economic strife, social unrest, and with the king being mad and the prince regions unpopular, Charlotte was the great hope yeah. uh, for the future. And she was very popular. As Henny Brofham commented at the time, it is scarcely possible to exaggerate, and it is difficult for persons not living at the time to believe how universal and how genuine those feelings were. It was really as if every household throughout Great Britain had lost a favourite child. Indeed, the poet Lord Byron, in his epic poem Child Harold, he wrote, Fond hope of many nations, art thou dead? Could not the grave forget thee, and lay low some less majestic, less beloved head? It's a bit of a Diana thing going on, then. Very much a Diana thing going on, except that she is meant to be... Yeah. the queen mm. of the future and also she's the only hope for the future because for all the illegitimate children and marriages of all George III's numerous sons mm. not a single one of them had a legitimate child so George III, all these children not one legitimate grandchild Now that because of the dead, Marriages Act because of the Marriages Act so there's now a race among all the brothers to produce a legitimate heir who will one day yeah. be king or queen now, Sandra Benson uh, emailed in a while ago suggesting we could have a Duke watch in similarity when There's we, a lot did, here, actually, when we did the Prince yeah. watch. Um, so we've got uh, George IV, who'd lost Charlotte. He's a bit too old and indeed estranged from his wife, Caroline, mm. to produce another heir. York, similarly. Duke of York is uh, estranged from his wife. Future William IV gets married, tries to do something. Kent and Cambridge both rush into marriages, while the Duke of Cumberland was already married, but without any children, and Sussex had married illegally. So these are all these sons. All brothers. All the brothers trying mm. to get a child. So we're down to two, Kent and York. Uh, well, no, Kent, William IV was one of those married, of course, yeah. Cambridge. Um, but it's Kent who ultimately wins, of course, the Duke of Kent, and he is the father of Victoria. Right. In 1818, um, he was the fourth son, so, you know, he wouldn't ever have expected things to come yeah. down quite that low. A military man who was in active service till 35. A reputation for being a very harsh disciplinarian in the army, but outside he took interest in sort of social experiments of Robert Owen, voted for Catholic emancipation, supported anti-slavery society. So he right. seems fairly yeah. decent yeah. sort of chap. And in 1818 he marries a woman called uh, Victoria, or Victoire, as we might call that. Right. Uh, she's about 31 years old, a widow already, with two children, and she is the sister of Leopold, the widower of Princess Charlotte. Oh, right. So he sort of wants to maintain his influence in England, yeah. so he encourages the match. And they're not at all related, are they? That's by marriage, isn't it? So there's, there's, the genetics are fine there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're fine. Um, but of course, Kent is 50, so Victoire's 31. Right. Um, really? He's quite tall, heavy set, bald, plump, rather mm. stiff bearing. What a catch. And he writes to her saying, I want you to know, my very dear princess, that I am nothing more than a soldier. 50 years old, and after 32 years of service, not very fitted to captivate at the heart of a young and charming princess who is 19 years younger. Mm. Yeah, well, he's got the, hit that nail on the head. Marry me. <laughs> <laughs> However, they actually have quite a good relationship. Victoire likes to have a man to rely on, and he was very happy to look after her. Very patient with her uh, struggles to learn the English language. And they're quite happy together. They moved to uh, Germany, initially, 
where they're residing. Isolated from their siblings, George the Fourth, Prince Regent, didn't really like Kent very much, thought him a bit of a bore. Right. Much preferred his other brothers. But when Victoire falls pregnant, Kent's determined the child will be born in Britain. Yeah. She knows that the public's very xenophobic and there'll be all sorts of rumours and gossip yeah. if the child yeah. isn't born there and then. However, George IV initially refuses to send him the royal yacht and to give him any money to help him, because he's got lots of debts and money troubles. So he had to get lots of friends to help him fund the journey. And then really? It, uh, what, for, for the future Queen of England? Yes. Wow. Eventually, when he gets to the coast, George IV relents and sends the royal yacht over. Mm. Um, but it was so bad, and Victoire was about eight months pregnant when they make this 400-mile journey over really rough roads. Mm. Awful experience for her, and indeed such was his efforts to keep down costs that he didn't even employ a driver, so Kent was driving the really? himself. Really? <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, when they got back, uh, George IV let them go to Kensington, mainly because he kept it in a very dilapidated state in the hope that if Caroline came back to England she wouldn't want to stay there. Right, yeah. Because that was sort of her residence. Um, so it had gone to rot, but nevertheless Kent set about improving it, making the labour room nice and luxuriant for his wife. Sure enough, she goes into labour, and on the 24th of May, 1819, a healthy baby girl is born at Kensington Palace. Hey, hello, Victoria. Hello, Victoria. Kent is, uh, is at his wife's bedside throughout, and the birth is witnessed by, among others, the Duke of Wellington. Really? Wait, really, wow. really. How old is he now? Oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's definitely kicking around. Yeah, crikey. Why did they have to have a witness? Uh, at that time, royal, royal births, um, people might become king, they had to have royal witnesses so that um, you'd be able to establish that it was a proper birth, that there was no... So there wasn't a James II going on. No, James II situation yeah. going on. Also, I think the Archbishop of Canterbury have various other people. They mm. have all these dignitaries who are there, these sort of rather that's stiff old men. Yeah, <laughs> that's awful. Oh, well. Um... But, of course, amazingly, and this is still during the reign of George III, we've got Victoria, who lives into the 20th century, still... In the era of George III? And when did George I come through? But he was around in 1707. Because he was king for 59 years. Huge. That's amazing. Connection. Time bridge. Indeed, someone later asked Victoria whether she'd met George III. Yeah. And to which she responded, What? Show a baby to a man who is mentally deranged? <laughs> what an idea! <laughs> but he was! <laughs> he was. Uh, so she didn't. Um, unusually, her mother insisted on personally breastfeeding Victoria. Is that, why is that? Very unusual at the time for aristocratic ladies to do it themselves. They would have had a wet nurse to do it. Oh, right. She did it herself. Apparently Kent found it most interesting in its nature. <laughs> Again, presumably at her bedside, <laughs> looking on rather curiously. scopes. Uh, Victoria's uh, baby was described as quite a pretty little pr- princess, plump as a partridge. <laughs> and uh, Kent said that she truly was a model of strength and beauty combined, although more a pocket Hercules than a pocket Venus. <laughs> Damning. <laughs> but she's a strong, robust child, which is what you want. Yeah. Really. Um, however, we haven't actually got to the point yet where she's Victoria. Mm. Because she has to have a christening. And there are all sorts of considerations have to take place in naming of royal children. She was going to be called Alexandra had to be called Alexandrina in honour of her godfather, Tsar Alexander in Russia. Why had to be? Is that just protocol? At the time, yes, right. because he was godfather in honour of him mm. had to be Alexandrina. They suggested Georgina as a second name, in honour mm. of George. Uh, but George Fourth vetoed this because it couldn't be before Alexandrina because that wouldn't be done for the Tsar. Mm. And he wasn't going to have his name come after anybody else's name. So they couldn't have Georgina. Right. When they actually get to the christening, George IV then vetoes the names of Charlotte, 
Augusta, and Elizabeth. The king can just veto these names. Yeah. Or the Prince Regent, as he is. Yeah. Um, so they sort of have this rather sort of nominal impasse. Where they right at the christening. At the christening. Uh, Victoria's mother burst into tears because yeah. it's all going so horribly wrong and George Fourth being so mean to them. At which point George eventually said, Give her the mother's name also then, but it cannot precede that of the emperor. And thus she was christened Alexandrina Victoria. Wow, that is fascinating. Mm. So why don't we know her as Alexandrina? Well, she was sometimes nicknamed Drina as a child. And why wasn't it Alexandria? Uh, is that a place? That's a place. Named <laughs> 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 after Alexander. Yeah, OK. Um, I, I, don't know, I guess maybe because of their mother's names being Victoria and that was their name, I suppose. That's just well, okay. she ended up being yeah. called. It will come up again, though. OK. Interesting. So, everything seems quite happy. George IV, of course, resenting Kent, who's now got the heir to the throne. Mm. He's not very happy about this. And he snubs them, doesn't give them any money, hopes that they'll pack their bags and go back to Germany. But Kent is quite happy, because he's a healthy man. Mm. Eats sparingly, shuns late nights, doesn't really drink, rises early. So, as he said himself, my brothers are not so strong as I am. I've led a regular life. I shall outlive them all. The crown will come to me and my children. Bah! <laughs> <laughs> But, where, hang on, where's William then? Well, problem is... So William is the, th- uh, the third son. Yeah. So we've got George, York, William, Kent. Mm-hmm. York dies during the Regency, so we've okay. got George, William, Kent. Yeah. William, his children have died young. Yeah. So when William dies and George has died, it will go to Kent. But before... But once George has died, it goes to William first. Yeah, and then, okay, then right. to Kent. Yeah. However... Kent uh, catches a chill whilst out walking. He was advised to rest, but because he was so uh, convinced of his own resilience, he continued off on long sea walks, still working really hard, and sure enough, he caught a fever. He didn't get the best treatment available because at this time George III was also dying, Mm. so the royal physician was off at Windsor dealing with him. And the doctor's treatment didn't do him much good at all. They used the tactic of cupping, which is where you get a hot cup, boiling hot cup, put it on a part of the body, oh, yeah. leave it there, and then when it's cooled, take it off, the air contracts, and blood is drawn. Right. Apparently about six pints of blood worth oh, bled from him. Uh, not a very pleasant experience at all. Uh, George IV sent a concerned note, <laughs> but Leopold comes over with Stockmar, his personal physician, but Stockmar saw that human help could no longer avail. So we've got Dan, sorry, I'm just jumping back here. Not mm. only have we got George, William, and then Victoria slash Kent, mm. we've got George, George, yes. William. Wow. Yeah. They're all just waiting for the next one to die to have a go. Yeah. Right, weird. Uh, so Stockmar says, you know, there's nothing we can do. Mm. In a moment of lucidity before he died, Kent made the Duchess his sole guardian of Victoria and also left her all of his property, mm. which was unusual. Usually it would go to the brothers, but he was too shrewd to leave it all to George IV because he knew he couldn't trust him to yeah. look after her. Uh, and then, 23rd of January, 1820, a couple of days before George III, he dies. Right, OK. So we've got her as a... Um, she now going to be... Well, we'll find out. Yeah, what I mean, as a, one person at the time, Croker said, he was the strongest of the strong, never before ill in his life, and now to die of a cold when half the kingdom of colds with impunity. It was very bad luck indeed. It was. It was desperately bad luck. The impact of this course is that the, the Duchess, we'll call her the Duchess from now on to confuse between the two Victorias, so Victoria's okay. mother, yeah. the Duchess. Yeah. She's alone in England with a little young baby, limited grasp 
of English, mm. and she's outcast by George IV and struggling to deal with all of these debts of her husband. So where's she living now, in Germany? Uh, no, she's still in England. In England, in but, Kensington. Yeah, but all on her own. She said, I'm hopelessly lost without my dearest Edward, who thought of everything and always shielded me. Whatever shall I do without his strong support? Uh, yeah, they get shunned by William. That's what's going to happen, isn't it? Uh, well, initially, of course, she's getting shunned by uh, George IV. See, I didn't like her in the previous um, episode because I really liked William, but now I feel a bit sorry for her. Mm. 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 Um, some support from Leopold, but he does go back mm. uh, to Belgium, but he does write and send money. However, Victoria has to grow up, and she does. Yeah. Um, she's In terms of her appearance at this sort of young childhood age, she's got the classic Canavarian features, sort of prominent nose, these sort of goggly eyes, <laughs> and um, was kind of naturally inclined to be a little plump. Yeah, in painting, she's a bit... Mm. Yeah. A bit round. Pre-Raphaelite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and she has a bit of a reputation for not being an intellectual, Victoria. She said herself, I was not fond of learning as a little child and baffled every attempt to teach me my letters up to five years old when I consented to learn them by their being written down before me. Right. What? However, this mainly because she, st- she was strong in sort of feminine things which were pushed on her like languages and female accomplishments, drawing, music artsy mm. stuff yeah. but there wasn't quite so much of classics mathematics science yeah. those sorts of things okay. just because of the way that girls were That's educated was, yeah. um, but she's a very cheerful little girl also has the headstrong Hanoverian temperament that we've seen from so many of the others good does she have this quite important uh, head shaped like a piece of fruit I don't think she does I'm afraid yeah, fairly ordinary head mm. um, she's very honest though as well as being temperamental so when she was four years old, there was this incident where her tutor came back and asked her mother if she'd behaved, Victoria had behaved, and the Duchess said, oh, there had been a little storm. Mm. At which point, the four-year-old Victoria pipes up, two storms, one at dressing and one at washing. <laughs> and she's got this honesty which stays with her throughout her life, um, brutal sometimes. So there was one point later, she was looking after her grandchildren, and she sent uh, a telegram to the parents saying, uh, children very well, but poor little Louise very ugly. Oh, Ooh, uh, quite uh, blunt. And Louise spoke to her about this later when she grew up and asked her, you know, why she said this. And she said, my dear child, it was only the truth. Oh, yes, that's all right then. Oh, wait, sugarcoating doesn't exist then with her. George III, despite all of this, um, isn't particularly keen to see Victoria. He finds it quite her, um, upsetting, I think, to the fact that he had a daughter that died. Mm. And then it was Kent, the brother who didn't like, who has the heir. So for a while, he doesn't want to know. In 1823, she makes her debut at court. And he's quite impressed. George IV always had a thing for children. Hey. In a perfectly innocent, nice way. He's very good with children, very generous. And um, he sent her a miniature portrait of himself, set in diamonds. (laughs) Oh, lucky her. (laughs) Crikey. And invited her to come back. Okay. And then in 1826, she went to Windsor, and this is when they really got along famously. Um, she recollected that the king took me by the hand, saying, Give me your little paw. He was large and gouty, but with a wonderful dignity and charm of manner. We heard him say... Did we we hear did, we did cover yeah, this, yes. Yeah, then yeah. he sort of picked her up and took yeah. her off in a carriage ride around That's Windsor. Nice. And um, after dinner, one of these nights, uh, he invited her to come and hear the band playing, mm. and he asked her what tune she wanted to hear. So she was able to charm him as much as he was able to charm her, so she requested God Save the King. Ah, uh, clever. Um, he then asked her what her favourite treat had been in her visit to Windsor, to which she said that the carriage ride with George IV. Yeah. He's yeah, loving this. She knows what she's he doing. He gives her a diamond bracelet and absolutely forbade any contradiction of her inclinations during her visits to him. 
i.e. he's going to spoil her rotten so George IV likes Victoria however Victor, uh, Victoire, the Duchess, has had to be dealing with things by herself, and she's found a man to help her out. And this man is John Conroy. Mm. He was an Irish officer, but didn't serve in any, any of the major Napoleonic campaigns, so he sort of had charmed women to win his promotions. Didn't make as much progress as he might have liked, however, um, but the Duke of Kent became his patron, so he was the head of the household. So thus, when Kent dies, Conroy is kind of the main right. man. yeah. In the household. He's tall, good-looking, but unscrupulous, quick-tempered, and very ambitious. And he had a plan to dominate the Duchess, dominate Victoria, and then secure himself a position of power when Victoria becomes queen. What kind of position? What was he imagining? Uh, like private a... private sec- secretary. Right, okay. So he would control access to her, do lots of the yeah. work, etc. He took control of the financial affairs, did all the practical things that needed doing, and the Duchess, I've seen she liked being looked after, and Conroy was looking after everything. Yeah. So she was very happy to rely on him, and she did completely rely on him. Mm. There were rumours that they were lovers. Founded? Some suggested they were. Wellington certainly thought that they were lovers, but possibly it was just a dependency issue. I have seen a young Victoria, and I'd say they were. Mark Strong in the film. And Miranda Richardson. Um, he was domineering of her as well so what he'd often do is he'd criticise her but then follow it up with affection so he sort of really undermines her right. sort of self-esteem and makes her dependent on him so she said one time what you said so often and what hurt me unhappily is true I'm not fit for my place I'm just an old stupid goose oh, Victoria said that no the Duchess the Duchess, the Duchess. Yeah. Um, so we have what is called the Kensington system so they were alarmed, particularly when George IV suddenly started being interested and taking kidnapping her on these uh, carriage rides. They were worried that they would court would sort of literally take her away and put her into the royal court yeah. out of their control. Because we've seen before George II that monarch does have the power to just oh, yeah, to ta- yeah, to take the royal children. And what's more, the Duchess feared that Victoria would get corrupted by the royal court, which is understandable when you're mm. talking about George IV. Or indeed be murdered by uh, another uncle, the Duke of Cumberland. Who what had murder? He had a reputation for being a bit of a rotter. Had killed a servant accidentally. Right. How did he commas. accidentally kill a servant? Uh, I think the servant fell onto his sword. Oh, that's, that's guaranteed. Yes. Killing. <laughs> yeah. uh, so they decided that they were going to keep complete control over Victoria and not let anybody else get in. So she would be completely separate from court. They wouldn't let her go. Um, educated solely at Kensington, and at every moment and experience would be completely controlled. Mm, this is this trouble's brewing. So she's never left alone. Whenever she meets with people, she has to be with a trusted chaperone, so that she can't have any of her own friends. Her only companions were Conroy's children, who Victoria didn't like because she thought they were socially inferior, and indeed they were spying on her. Which, presumably, they were. Yeah. They were. Yeah. Um, she couldn't walk downstairs without someone holding her hand, and she slept in her mother's bed the whole time. What? Mm. With her mother, or just the mother was elsewhere? With <laughs> with mother. <laughs> okay. Incredibly nice. controlled. Um, so maybe they weren't like, going out with Conroy. Well, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Uh, and indeed, this was noticed. Adelaide, um, as William's king, of course, George IV died, wrote to her saying, "In the family, it is noticed that you're cutting yourself off more and more." from them with your child. They believe Conroy tries to remove everything that might obstruct his influence so that he may exercise his power alone. Mm. Because Adelaide had actually visited um, 
the Duchess when she became widowed. So while George the Fourth captivated, Adelaide did yeah. visit, and she wrote to Victoria. She was very affectionate to Victoria in her letters. But Duchess and Conroy don't like this. They'd feared George the Fourth because he was an unpredictable kind of chap. Yeah. But William the Fourth, when he becomes king, he's far too nice to be any real kind of threat. So they no longer worry. They can just do what they like. They don't respect him. Right. So, pretty much as soon as he becomes king, the Duchess writes to the Duke of Wellington demanding um, a regency bill, in which he will be regent, and also that she be styled as the Dowager Princess of Wales with an appropriate income. Right, so this is where she steps the mark. Mm. Wellington said that this was altogether inadmissible and advised that she pretended that she hadn't sent the letter. Yeah, good plan. Um, and there's conflict with the royal court. The Duchess refuses to have Victoria be around uh, William's illegitimate Fitz Clarence children, even mm. when she's a guest in his own house. Mm. She won't let Victoria go near them. She stopped Victoria attending William's coronation over an argument about the order in the possession of Victoria as opposed to the other uncles. Mm. And uh, William IV objected to these sort of Elizabethan-style progresses that Conroy organised for Victoria. So they went around the country right. meeting and greeting as if she was already yeah, the queen. Yeah. And uh, he hated Conroy, he referred to him as King John. And he even tried to get Victoria's name changed, William, because he thought Victoria's a foreign name, nobody knows it, nobody likes it, she'd have a different name. That's, it's, that's already been a bit of a kerfuffle. Though. Exactly, yeah. so the Duchess was not going to let this, this one pass. So Conroy's definitely got his way over the Duchess, but he doesn't get his way over Victoria. Victoria, unlike her mother, doesn't respond well to him, his overbearing, insulting yeah. approach. She requires affection and flattery rather than threats. So she hates him. And as she grows older, she recognises the fact that he's keeping her from court, that she's not being allowed to see friends or anything like that. So she's trying to rebel against him. She doesn't like the fact that the she has to go on these progresses when she knows that William IV has objected to them so much. Yeah. And she has an ally at Kensington, the Baroness Eleison. From five years old, her governess and her tutor sought to instil a bit of discipline because she'd been a bit of a sport child up till then. Uh, inspired by Elizabeth I, so she wants Victoria to be a strong queen. And she manages to keep her head down so she stays in service so that Conroy doesn't dismiss her. But from 1829, she's starting to get tensions with Conroy because she's supporting Victoria. Right. She's the one sort of friendly face in an otherwise rather hostile environment. But William IV, as we saw last time, he's not very happy about any of this. He likes Victoria. He recognises as her heir. He wants to see more of her. And he can... He's allowed to see her on his own. Well, he should be, really, but he doesn't force the issue because it wouldn't be very seemly for him to effectively be seen as forcing right. a, a widow to do things. Mm. But, as we said, uh, he was eventually pushed to an outburst in public where he declared that he hoped he'd live long enough so that Victoria would be spared her mother's regency because she was not up to the job. Mm. Um, and he later uh, wrote to Victoria offering her an independent income of £10,000 and her own establishment um, once she'd turned 18. So he was in effect saying, you know, once you turn 18, I'm going to give you money and you can be free of all of this. I'm going to get you out. Right. But uh, Victoria was made by Conroy to write a dictated letter uh, refusing the offer. Because he was intercepting all her mail. Yeah. Oh, but that's of, dreadful. But of course, William recognised this. As soon as he got the letter, he said, Victoria's not written that letter. Mm. Oh, brilliant. He knew what was going on. Um, it starts to have an adverse effect on Victoria. The stress of it meant she was tired, uh, stressed, and starting to feel unwell. And she was having strained relations with her mother as well, because her mother isn't standing up for her. She's yeah. back in Conroy. 
Uh, Conroy portrayed all of her portrayed all of her complaints of ill health as evidence of the fact that Victoria was immature, needed direction and instruction from her elders and those that knew her, i.e., him. Mm. She did have another ally, Leopold, her uncle, oh, yeah, yeah. to whom she writes, and he writes back, giving her sort of almost fatherly advice. He's kind of a, a father figure to her. Gives her advice on what to be queen. Gives sends her all these instructions, things through history, and she gives asks for advice. So Stockmar his physician, comes over to intervene. He's frustrated at what's going on, at Conroy's power, tries to point out to them this is a ridiculous strategy because Victoria's ministers and her future husband aren't going to stand for someone having this level of control. Yeah. So yeah. as soon as she's queen, he's going to get kicked out. Yeah. But nevertheless, uh, they carry on doing it. 1836, Leopold himself visits and he promises Victoria that he will support her against Conroy. So she's starting, as she gets older, she's starting to get some alliances. So, but as soon as she turns 18, presumably she could just say, be, be off with you. Well, she is still her mother's household, of course. Mm. And she still has to have a chaperone of sorts, so while she's not married. Right. And while William is king, she's still not really an independent person. Mm. Well, it's like a completely trapped poor girl. She is. Um... However, things start to get a bit desperate for Conroy because Victoria is getting near to 18 years old and William is still going strong. Mm. Well, he's not going strong, but he's still alive. Yeah. Um, so he presents Victoria Conroy with a, a written pledge for her to sign that she would appoint him as her private secretary when she's queen. So he's trying to get it in writing before she becomes 18, before William dies, he wants it in writing that he's but got this position of power. Even if he gets it, he can, she can just fire him, can't she? Yes, but I suppose if it's in writing, he'd then at very least have to have pretty big compensation mm-hmm. if she yeah. went back on a written agreement. Even though she's under all this pressure, even though she's ill, however, Victoria refuses to give way. She's not backing down. Mm-hmm. She's got some fight in her. Eey. And she turns 18. Yes. She writes herself, Today is my 18th birthday. How old? And yet how far am I from being what I should be? I shall from this day take the firm resolution to study with renewed assiduity, to keep my attention always well fixed on whatever I am about, and to strive to become every day less trifling and more fit for what, if heaven wills it, I am some day to be. I queen. She's getting ready. Oh, right. She okay. sees it coming. Conroy's getting desperate. Because William's still alive. William's still alive mm. and Victoria's now 18. Mm. It, essentially, the game is up. Still putting pressure on her. When William IV falls seriously and fatally ill, the Duchess is forced to write a letter to the Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, saying that Victoria had requested that her mother be regent because she wasn't ready. Even though she's 18, she's just not up to the job yet. And this, this wasn't... Stockmar sorry. caught wind of it and let Melbourne know that this is all a lot of nonsense. Stockmar, the physician. The physician, yeah, yeah. Leopold's man, mm. doing the job. Then they're visited at Kensington by Lord Liverpool, a senior man, who initially visits Conroy, and Conroy says Victoria's immature, she's incapable of governing without advice from one who knows, so as soon as she becomes queen, I need to be there as private secretary, and mum needs to be regent, she's not able to do the job. Mm. He then sees Victoria on her own, who says in no uncertain terms that there'll be no place for Conroy once she becomes queen, and that she would put herself entirely in the hands of her ministers. Ah, which he likes. The which same. he likes, because yeah. even if she is immature, she's yeah. saying, I'm just going to do whatever the government told me to do. Yeah. So she's getting her way, she's getting her allies, yes. she's building her support base. And then, sadly, of course, William IV does die. Yeah, poor bloke. Poor bloke. Uh, 1837, of course. So the Lord Chamberlain, Archbishop of Canterbury, in the middle of the night, go from his deathbed uh, to Kensington, still dark, knock on the door, Victoria comes down in her slippers, a cotton dressing gown, and learns that she's queen. 
How did they break the news? Just say hello, Your Majesty, or something. Whoop. <laughs> Uh, apparently, I mean, it's one of those, it's kind of, it's not so much now, but it was kind of one of those sort of grand stories in British history, like Alfred Cakes or Canute and the Tide. It was one of these great sort of legends that sort of children would grow up learning about Victoria. This beautiful yeah. young girl becomes queen, comes down and addresses well, That's her. like uh, Elizabeth II, though, in Kenya. Apparently the first she got wind of it was when she was told, good morning, your majesty. So, Victoria is queen. And pretty much the first thing she does is banish her mother from her bedroom. Fair enough. From now on, her mum can only visit her by appointment. Oh, that is that's quite. Mm. And what's more, Conroy is out. Uh, oh, I want to know how she breaks it. Does she write it down? I don't know how she does that. Yeah. Um, however, Conroy, he's not going to take this line down. So he writes to Melbourne, the Prime Minister, demanding a peerage, Grand Cross of the Order of the Bath, a three thousand per year pension, and a seat on the Privy Council. On what basis? On the basis that he's done all these years of service. He's an important man. Deserves mm. some kind of payoff. Melbourne reacts saying, this is really too bad. Have you ever heard of such impudence? No. However, the fact that he did have this long year's service and they didn't want any problems, he did concede the pension and a baronetcy. So he still remained in the Duchess's service, her mother, because that's mm. her service, but nevertheless, Victoria was rid of Conroy. Hey, thank God. He was a bit of a... So Victoria's queen and the Kensington system is broken. Excellent. He was a bit of hard work, that man. He was hard work. It's something... It's, it's one of these where we can't say this should be a film because it actually is a film, of course, the Young Victorian. Mm, yeah. But it should really, it should be a Disney cartoon. Yeah, um, yeah, being locked in a room with a yeah. nasty. Uh, what was he? Officer? Nasty army brute. Army man, yeah. yeah. So, Victoria is queen. Her first council, um, the ministers are apprehensive about what she'd be like because they've not seen Victoria, they've just been fed all these awful stories from Conroy, they're worried that they're going to get some sort of delinquent sort of yeah, child. Yeah, raspberries and all this. Yeah, but after the first meeting, they're very relieved. Indeed, Duke of Wellington said, if she had been his own daughter, he could not have desired to see her perform mm. her part better. Oh, good. High praise, praise indeed. indeed. Yeah. And her first Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, is the perfect first Prime Minister for the young and inexperienced Victoria. Handsome and charming, Whig Prime Minister, a man of the world at 58, well-bred, laid-back. He's a sort of aristocratic lounge lizard. Okay. Very calm, very laid back, all-knowing. He's a mentor figure, another right. father figure, in effect. As she said, he is a very straightforward, honest, clever and good man. I feel so safe when he speaks to me and is with me. He has something so fatherly and so affectionate and kind in him. Right. So, how, many, how many prime ministers did she have? Uh, well, we'll come to oh, that. Maybe in episode okay. three we'll come to that. When we get to her, uh, her prime ministers. <laughs> Longevity. Ten, though, is the answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's no real reason to keep that in suspense. She has ten prime ministers. Okay. Outlives eight of them. Yeah. Jolly good. Um, so, of course, she becomes queen. What does she have to do? Coronation. Yes. Now, backwards horses. No backwards horses. Oh, that should be a tradition. It should. <laughs> Victoria, it's a wonderful day for her, and, of course, we get her opinion on it. She said, It was a fine day, and the crowds of people exceeded what I've ever seen. Many as there were the day I went to the city, it was nothing, nothing to the multitudes, the millions of my loyal subjects who were assembled in every spot to witness the process. Their good humour and excessive loyalty was beyond everything, and I really cannot say how proud I feel to be the queen of a nation. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. But it being a coronation, not all goes to plan. Yes, this is more like it. Uh, an octogenarian man, Lord Roll, mm. had uh, conducted her to King Edward's chair, but he then had to sort of walk backwards away from her, down some steps. And unfortunately, being an old man, 
he falls down the steps. Yes, of course. So everyone rushes to help him, and the first person to get to him is Victoria herself, rushes to his aid, which everybody loves. Round of applause, the young queen, concerned for somebody else rather than being... So she got up, that's pretty good. Got up to help him. Um, Bishop of Bath and Wells accidentally turned over two pages at once in the service, (laughs) so was forced to go back and do it again. And then I say to the... The end. (laughs) (laughs) And her coronation ring was too small, because Uh the jeweller that made it had made it for the wrong finger. I had a smaller one than the one that actually was meant to oh, be right, put on. Oh, a wedding ring finger. Uh, but never, I don't know if it was a wedding ring, but it was, mm. she, he made it for the little oh, one. Right. But nevertheless, the Archbishop of Canterbury insisted on forcing it on. Oh. Apparently it was very painful, and yeah. it took her two hours to remove it after the ceremony. <laughs> Good grief. And uh, it, it was all a little bit slapdash in certain areas, which also noted, what was called an altar was covered with sandwiches, bottles of wine, etc., the Archbishop came in and ought to have delivered the orb to me, but I had already got it. And he, as usual, was confused and puzzled and knew nothing. Why was there sandwiches and wine on the table? Did you, was this the bread so and wine? This is kind of behind the scenes oh, altar, okay. and it's just mm. sandwiches, wine. And then yeah. they sit down, she takes the crown off and you know, have yeah. a drink. Halfway through? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, but she has fun. Mm. She becomes queen. She's loving it. She's free. Yeah. So uh, she goes on these sort of golden summer, riding around on her horses with all her ministers, takes up chess. So she play, can roll. Play, play against one of her aunts, where she'd been advised by Melbourne, Palmerston and Hobhouse. So four against one, did she win? Great ministers. She didn't. Apparently they got a little bit overexcited, her ministers, and she said, between them all, I got quite beat, and Aunt Louise triumphed over my council of ministers. How quickly time passes when one is happy. Hmm. Yeah, doesn't say much for a minister, so... No, indeed. I think they all just love it. In fact, they've got this sort of 18-year-old girl to suddenly all these yeah. sort of old men that are yeah. swanning around. It's really life. fun. Yeah. However, um, not however, I haven't got to that bit yet. This is the young Victoria. So she's grown up a bit now, so she's a new person. So we're going to have another little look at her okay. and what she's like. Even though she's now 18, she's very short when fully grown. She's only about 4 foot 11. That is very short. Very short indeed. Uh, she told Lord Melbourne that the stresses of Kensington had stunted her growth. Mm. Don't know if that's true or not. How tall is her mother? Taller. Right. And her dad? Taller. In fact, he was quite tall, actually. <laughs> oh, right, okay. He was quite tall. Um, still inclined to plumpness, but a little bit more slender now that she's mm. grown. Not very much grown, obviously, but grown a little bit. Fair skin, blue eyes and long flowing brown hair. Right. And uh, a man called Mr. Creevy in 1837 noted of her, a more homely little being you never beheld when she is at her ease, and she's evidently dying to be always more so. She blushes and laughs every instant in so natural a way as to disarm everybody. Hmm. This is a different image to Victoria, as I mentioned. It is a different image to Victoria. Uh, an American person, an American woman, uh, noted that her bust, like most English women's, is very good. <laughs> Hands and feet small and very pretty. Her eyes are blue, large and full. Her mouth, which is her worst feature, is generally a little open. Her teeth small and short, and she sews her gums when she laughs, which is rather disfiguring. Right. Well, Victoria would have been happy with that. It's blunt, it's true. (laughs) Indeed. Although Victoria does worry. She's quite an insecure young girl. uh, Not sure about her abilities, but also her appearance. She worries that her eyebrows are too too thin. And she was shocked to discover in 1838 that she weighed 8 stone 13. For someone at five foot eleven, though four foot eleven, four foot eleven, <laughs> that is quite not little inclined to plumpness. Melbourne told her not to grow her eyebrows any thicker, and in terms of her weight, she advised her that the best figure for a woman is fine and full with a fine bust. Yeah, they love it. <laughs> um, 
How would she have control over how big her eyebrows are? Did they pluck them, I presume? Yeah, she would have plucked them, so she could have just let them them go. And as she said, it's not the Victoria that we imagine, and part of this, of course, is that she's smiling. Yeah, showing her gums off. And she's got a lovely smile. Mary Ponsonby says, No smile was the least like it, and no shadow of it preserved under the evil spell of the photographic camera. It came very suddenly, in the form of a mild radiance over the whole face, a flash of kindly light beaming from the eyes. And Dame Ethel Smythe said, So awe-inspiring was the first impression um, of her, that I should have been terrified but for the wonderful blue childlike eyes and the most sweetest and entrancing smile I have ever seen on a human face. I thought they said it was disfiguring. As the American woman said that when she opens her mouth and shows her teeth. Mm. She's a bit harsh. But everybody else says that in the photographs... She never smiles. Presumably she thought it was inappropriate. So we have this stern woman in the photographs. But what you need to try and imagine is that stern face just brightening up. Yeah. Really yeah. lovely childlike smile. I wonder when the first photo... Because so she is the first royal to be photographed. She's indeed. 1840s. We all sort of come to some, some of these first, which mm. she is the first for a lot of things. But yes, 1840s for the first time. There is one photo of her smiling. Uh, so one of her jubilees, someone caught her. Oh, right. Shot. So we do see the Victorian smile. Okay. We have got one photo of it. So you need to imagine that on yeah. every photo and every portrait. <laughs> okay. um, her voice also is meant to be lovely. Um, Ellen Terry described it as like a silver stream flowing over golden stones. Did these people want something from her? No, these aren't people who are saying it to her. This is just, you know, people. everybody's now writing their diaries now, so we've yeah, got all sorts it. of first-hand right. accounts. And apparently she's got a lovely voice and a lovely okay. smile. Um, she's also got something of an appetite. Mm. which you might imagine mm. through her little plumpness uh, Mr McCreevy again noted that she eats quite as heartily as she laughs I think I may say she gobbles <laughs> Melbourne wants advice that the people should only eat when they are hungry to which Victoria responded in that case I shall be eating all day <laughs> <laughs> because she, she's a gobbler she eats lots of food she's a gobbler <laughs> she eats it very quickly as well so she does literally walk it yeah. down and court etiquette required that everyone else had to stop eating when the Queen stops eating and their oh, meals right. instantly get taken away. So there's a race then? Yes, yeah, so there's this man, uh, Lord Hartington, apparently was called out uh, when his mutton and peas vanished. Yeah, bring that back! Because <laughs> he literally would have been eating and just went... Yeah, taken away from him. Yeah. Right. Uh, but she's warm-hearted, she's very emotional, vivacious. Quite she's got big bust. Obstinate, big bust. Um, and artsy, which you might expect from her uh, upbringing, yeah. her education, and also her emotional temperament. Keen artist from, from a young age. She had 12 lessons from Edward Lear, Oh, yeah. Yes, right, yeah. poet. Hundreds of her drawings remain in the royal collection, though she did warn that you've got to be careful of artists who do not know where they've been. What did she mean by that? <laughs> Literature, she's a fan of uh, Walter Scott and Charles Dickens, <laughs> and she also wrote to Lewis Carroll saying how much she'd enjoyed Alice in Wonderland and uh, asked him if he could send her any more of his work. Really? But of course, Lewis Carroll's real name was Charles Dodgson, and he was a maths don. Yeah. University, so apparently he then sent her his uh, syllabus for the plain algebraic geometry. <laughs> oh, good gag. Uh, did she like it? She was a little bemused. Yeah, she was quite left-brained. Now, of course, being a Hanoverian, yeah. she went to York Minster and saw a performance of Handel's Messiah. Yes, of course. Heavy and tiresome. Ah. I'm not at all fond of Handel's music. I like the present Italian schools, such as Rossini, Bellini, Donizetti, etc., much better. Wow. Okay. So this is truly a this new is a era. Change, yeah. She doesn't like Handel. Wow! But is it at the coronation? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. However, after this great start, things start to get a little bit awry for her. 1838, she falls into a bit of lethargy and depression, as we said, worrying about her health, 
her weight, even just making small talk with strangers. She's got all these sort of insecurities mm. that we'd recognise now. She's quite shy because she's been so isolated. Yeah, it's all suddenly. because of that chap. Yeah. And there are a couple of crises which remove her early popularity. First of all, a woman called Flora Hastings. A lady-in-waiting for her mother, the Duchess, and Victoria saw her as effectively one of Conroy's women. Mm. She falls ill, Lady Flora Hastings, but Victoria and Melbourne are convinced that she's pregnant. To such an extent that she's even made to undergo a physical examination, Ooh. in which she's discovered to be a virgin. And it later turns out, unfortunately, that um, she isn't feigning illness, as Victoria then uh, insists, but actually she had a fatal cancer. Oh, dear. And uh, when she dies, going to the funeral, Victoria's carriage pelted with stones for people in the crowds. Because really, well, it doesn't look very good. It isn't very good. Yeah, no, not at all. But how do people find out this stuff? It's just reported. In all these gossipers and, and whatnot. And unfortunately, at the same time, Melbourne is forced to resign. His government, um, its majority is reduced to five over Jamaica Constitution Bill. It's not enough, and he decides, you know, we've got to go. Mm. Victoria highly emotional, tearful, hysterical at the prospect of losing Melbourne and having to bring in the Conservatives of uh, Robert Peel. Mm. And she doesn't want him. And their first meeting is very awkward. He doesn't make a good impression. And she said, Such a cold, odd man. Oh, how different, how dreadfully different to that frank, open, natural and most kind, warm manner of Lord Melbourne. This can happen. Prime Ministers and monarchs don't always get on. But... Peel expected that Victoria's ladies-in-waiting, who were all wives of Whig aristocrats, mm. would be replaced with Conservatives, because that was what tended to happen, the yeah. ladies would move. But Victoria refuses to change any of them. To which Peel said, what, but even the da-da-da, all will remain. And this is something of an impasse. Duke of Wellington's brought in to try and sort it out, but Victoria stamps her foot, won't budge, and Peel, after discussing with his sort of proto-cabinet, is forced to say, well clearly we don't have your confidence so we can't form a government because the people who put her clothes on in the morning yeah Victoria won't change in them so Melbourne and the Whigs come back well she did rather well then well in a way she does rather well but there's a lot of unease that she's so partisan mm. so emotionally charged that as Greville uh, bemoans the caprice of a girl of 19 can overturn a great ministerial combination yeah but I mean Maybe they just shouldn't get quite so worked up about. Well, but I mean, because she's she is very partisan. She supports the Whigs, so she's very glad that she's got avoided yeah. having to call mm. on Peel and Conservatives. Mm. And even Melbourne is starting to get a bit worried that she's getting more and more emotional, a bit unstable. Her temper is starting to come out a little bit more. She needs a man. She does need a man. So of course we've got to get that girl <laughs> married. I was joking. But <laughs> <this is> too- <laughs> Victoria is very reluctant about the idea of getting married. Um, she said, I dread the idea of marrying. I was accustomed to have my own way, that I thought it was ten to one I shouldn't agree with anybody. Mm. However, there is someone who, from a very young age, has been set up to be her future husband. Albert. He's been set up to be her husband? Indeed. Um, he's three months younger than Victoria, but from a young age, uh, because he is the nephew of Leopold. Are they in any way related? They are cousins. Oh. <laughs> First cousins. First cousins. Okay. Leopold, once again, looking at a way to maintain his influence in England, thinks, aha, this is perfect, they're about the same age. Boom. I mean, perfect. <laughs> Stockmar, again, yeah. he is 
uh, Albert's mentor brings him up to be the perfect prince, the perfect husband. He had a rather unhappy childhood, Albert. His uh, adulterous father kicked out his adulterous mother right. when Albert was just five years old, so he's quite lonely in terms of not having any sort of maternal affection. And this gives him something of a hang-up about social and sexual mores. So he's got a very strict morality, but he's also very hard-working, very intellectual, very public-spirited. Mm. He's this really sort of ideal prince. Right. Um, also, of course, with Prince Albert, which is his rumours persisted that he had an intimate body piercing ah. to boost his appearance wearing tight trousers. I always wonder where that came from. It's not true, but that is where we get a Prince Albert oh, terminology right. from this okay. Albert. Right. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Their first meeting, he came over with his brother, met Victoria. She was taken by his excellent figure and his good looks. He was quite a handsome young man. But she also noticed that he got ill while he was there and he seemed quite tired. And she wrote to Leopold in 1839, keen to sort of distance herself from the idea that this was a done deal. said, I may like him as a friend and as a cousin and as a brother. Though he wasn't a brother. Mm. But not more. And should this be the case, that it would be more, which is not likely, I am very anxious that it should be understood that I am not guilty of any breach of promise. For I never gave any. Mm. So she's saying, all right, you know, hold, hold on, yeah. I'm, no marriage going on here. And it's not just Victoria that's uncertain about the marriage. Melbourne isn't too enthusiastic about it, because a foreign match, and particularly a Coburg match, because we already had Leopold and Victoire, yeah. the Duchess. They think public aren't too keen on these Belgian sponges coming over and yeah. taking all the money. He's also not too sure about cousins. He doesn't think that's the best. Oh, quite right. And Albert isn't too keen about it all either. Because he's this very moral, serious, public-spirited man, and he doesn't like the idea of marrying Victoria, who's very stubborn and has trivial interests, the sort of frivolities of courts and dances and entertainment. Mm. doesn't really sit with what he likes. She likes to get up late and go to bed late. He's up early, working hard. Bed with yeah. some cocoa. Yeah. So but opposites, maybe? We'll maybe see. opposites. They meet a second time, which, again, Victoria wasn't sure, didn't want him to come over, but... She greets him from the top of the stairs at Windsor and is instantly impressed. It was with some emotion that I beheld that I beheld Albert, who is beautiful. Albert really is quite charming and so excessively handsome. Such beautiful eyes, an exquisite nose and such a pretty mouth, with delicate mustachios and slight but very slight whiskers. A beautiful figure, broad in the shoulders and a fine waist. She does have a bit of a penchant for uh, attractive men. She does notice them in her diary. Really? <laughs> yeah. And so she decides she wants to get married. Okay. Melbourne gives his blessing, thinks Albert's a bit of a boring stick, but doesn't tell mm. her that. Um, protocol, of course, dictated that as Queen, it was she that had to, dicta- uh, had to propose to Albert. Really? Is that... Wow. So she proposes to Albert. Did um, Queen Elizabeth propose well, to... Because she wasn't Queen at the time. Ah, oh, okay. Right. Um, so they get engaged. And in 1840, both 20 years old, they get married. Right. Um, she only invited five Tories to the wedding. Um, and when Melbourne suggested maybe she should have some more, uh, she said, It is my marriage and I will only have those who can sympathise with me. Yeah. That then, must have gone down like a lead blue, though. Didn't go down very well, the Tories. Then, of course, they had their wedding night. Yeah. And this is another thing we might not expect about Victoria. She's a very sensual being. No, she's not. She is. Oh, dear. This is playing all of my dreams out the window. <laughs> a most gratifying and bewildering night. When day dawned, for we did not sleep much. Oh, no, Victoria. And I... <laughs> oh, it's like hearing your mum. <laughs> 
and I beheld that beautiful angelic face by my side, it was more than I can express. He had a black velvet jacket on, without any neckcloth on, and looked more beautiful than it is possible for me to say. I never, never spent such an evening! Three exclamation marks. My dearest, dearest, dear, all capital letters, Albert, sat on a footstool by my side, and his excessive love and affection gave me feelings of heavenly love and happiness I never could have hoped to have felt before. Oh, I thought it was going to go into slightly more detail. I'm a bit relieved. <laughs> but I am glad you said jacket. <laughs> Did the guard have nine children? Yeah, well... I was- Populating all of Europe's dynasties. Indeed, and when an obstetrician suggests to her afterwards that she avoid having any more children, mm. uh, Victoria responded, Oh, Sir James, am I to have no more fun in bed? Oh, Victoria, <laughs> goodness me. Despite all of this, they have a very short honeymoon because Victoria insists that business can stop and wait for nothing. That's more an Albert thing to say, isn't it? Well, yes, at this time she's taking her duties mm. very seriously, but... They are a moral family. They set the tone at court. No more licentiousness and gambling, any of this. They set the example. They move into more sober buildings rather than the palatial uh, excess and grandeur that George mm. IV liked. So Osborne House and the Isle of Wight, Balmoral in Scotland. Yeah. And um, so they're the national sort of middle-class family yeah. devoted to their children. Hang on, well, didn't she move into Buckingham Palace? She was the first in Buckingham She was Palace. first moving to Buckingham Palace, but so it's a Brighton Pavilion, that kind of thing. They yeah, yeah, on. yeah. But they like to take their time away in these more rural, okay. outdoorsy sorts mm. of places. Another thing which is going to blow your mind, mm. they have fun and a sense of humour. No, I'm pretty sure. Alec York is a man that told a risque story in the presence of Victoria and a young girl, which did provoke Victoria to say, infamously, we are not amused. Oh, really? That's true. She did say that. Uh-huh. But it's not a good representation of her general outlook on life. Yeah, that's that's exactly where... Yeah, mm. that's what I thought it was all She's about. She's good-humoured, laughs a lot, very high-spirited. As uh, one of her secretaries, Sir Henry Ponsonby, noted, she often burst into laughter when he hadn't even meant to be funny. <laughs> it's just she didn't get the joke. <laughs> Hang on, so when she said we are not amused, was she using the royal we or saying we, me and this girl, aren't amused? I think she, she was basically saying that's not really appropriate, is it? Mm-hmm in the current company Uh, Mr uh, Creevy again 1837 noted she laughs in real earnest opening her mouth as wide as it can go (laughs) and the American woman who's quite critical of her Mm. um, appearance otherwise said that her laugh was particularly delightful so full of girlish glee and gladness do we know what the joke was? no sadly that's a shame don't know what it is another woman Eleanor Stanley said that uh, she went I went with the Queen and the Prince last night to the Haymarket Theatre awfully stupid but the royal couple laughed very much and seemed to enjoy it of all things. It is certainly a nice thing about them that they are so easily amused. And I've got a couple of examples of things which did set Victoria Good. into hysterics. Other than <clears throat> One of them was a man, Admiral Foley, who was an elderly and hard of hearing... Um, well, Admiral, obviously. Mm. And he was going on in rather boorish detail telling extended stories about his ship, the HMS Eurydice. Mm. When eventually he paused, Victoria took the opportunity to moved the conversation and inquired as to the health of his sister. Unfortunately, he misheard and thought she was talking about the ship. So he said, Well, ma'am, I'm going to have her turned over, take a good look at her bottom, (laughs) have it well scraped. (laughs) (laughs) Victoria, in tears of laughter, had to hide her face in the handkerchief. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Another one, there was a politician who was waiting outside the staterooms. He was going to be knighted. Yeah. Very nervous and intimidated about this prospect, so he asked the courtier what he's meant to do. 
when he goes in. The courtier says, well, you kneel down. And then she does, does the knighting. Stateroom doors open, Victoria at the end of the room and all her finery. The politician falls straight to his knees. But of course, he's still got the whole of the room. <laughs> yeah. So he waddles <laughs> on his knees <laughs> towards Victoria, who again was very amused. And then she, when she retreated, she observed that the little man continued, followed, still on his knees, really waddling along. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Poor bloke. Oh. Not everyone was impressed by their uh, tendency to laughter. Lady Mary Ponsonby said that uh, Albert went into a moderate fits of laughter at anything like a practical joke. For instance, if anyone caught his foot in a mat or nearly fell into the fire, the mirth of the whole royal family know new bounds. Yeah, it's funny, slapsticks. And uh, Lord Granville rather grumpily noted that why bother to tell your best stories in a house where you get far louder laughter by shutting your thumb in the door? (laughs) Good, easy crowd. So they're an easy crowd and they're a laughing crowd. Good. However, government does need to be done, mm. and Albert wants to get involved. Mm. Initially, he doesn't have much of a role at all. Uh, the Tories objected to proposals for him to have a £50,000 a year allowance. It was only £30,000 a year. She saw it as a bit of an insult. He was denied precedence over Victoria's uncles, or to be styled as king. And, indeed, Victoria kept business to herself, shortened her honeymoon. You know, mm. He's not got a lot to do. But he plays the patient long game and mm. gradually improves his influence. First thing he does is he gets rid of Victoria's old governess, Baroness Layson. Yeah. She still holds quite a strong influence over Victoria and she doesn't like Albert at all. We get Susan as an interloper. Right. Um, he thought that uh, Layson was a crazy, common, stupid intriguer. So he doesn't like her at all. Mm. thinks she's a yellow old hag. Right. <laughs> and she has bad influence on Victoria, he thinks, as well. 1842, he works it such that Melbourne reaches a compromise whereby Lazen retires with a generous annual pension. So she's out of there. And right. thus, the relationship between Albert and Victoria, which got a little bit tense, uh, improves. Good. And his influence starts to improve. The Duchess, Victoria's mother, Albert was saddened at the fact that they were estranged, and he blamed Baroness Lazen for perpetuating the yeah. sense of estrangement. So he strikes up a strong relationship with the mother, and Mother and daughter grow close to each other once again. Oh, right. So they're reunited. But, um, what's this? Chops is out the window. Oh, Conroy's out the window. Melbourne has to resign again. Mm. But this time, Albert has done some of the good work, and there are no more histrionics from Victoria. Victoria didn't like Peel at first, but Albert, a serious public-minded man, has got quite a lot in common with him. So he lays the groundwork, persuades a couple of the elderly... Uh, Whig ladies to retire mm. so we don't have a repeat of the bedroom crisis right and everything goes I've heard of that is that what that was called the bedroom crisis yeah, yeah. I didn't say it did I the bedroom oh, crisis right. that's yeah, what yeah, it's yeah. called and thus Peel becomes Prime Minister and it all goes swimmingly Wait, what year is this it was about 1830 uh, this is 1842 or oh, so right. I think okay. so Peel's in government and it's all going okay but most importantly Victoria has those nine children mm. so she's out of action for quite a lot of the time mm. So she's happy to, for Albert to take on a lot more of the business, particularly because she suffers quite a lot of the time from what we now understand as postnatal depression. Oh, right. At the time, she's just seen as being emotional and flighty and womanly. Yeah. yeah. But obviously that means that she's really suffering. She doesn't want to do a lot of the work. Nine times. <clears throat> Indeed. Mm. So Albert takes on more of the work, and we have something of a dual monarchy. He gets an adjacent desk to Victoria. They're both sat next to each other. Oh, sweet. Scribbling away. Um, Peel gives him uh, the keys to the uh, sort of cabinet boxes so that he is then reading all of the papers. 
Um, he's made a member of the Privy Council, named regent in the event of Victoria's death yeah. in pregnancy, and they start seeing the ministers together. So, but he can't like mm. sign things as Victoria. He hasn't got. He got Not quite that. Right. Okay. Um, but he sometimes sees ministers by himself. And as Charles Greville noted, the prince is so identified with the queen that they are one person. And as he likes and she dislikes business, it is obvious that while she has the title, he is really discharging the functions of the sovereign. He is king to all intents and purposes. Oh, right. Because oh. she's ceding more and more yeah. ground to him. And what's more, he wants to have <clears throat> a restraining, educating, improving influence of Victoria. Yeah. Because she's been seen as this flighty, emotional young woman. She yeah. needs to be improved. Yeah. So, a positive influence, we can see. Um, she becomes less partisan. So she's no longer a Whig. She is now more above party. Yeah. So that's the constitutional role of the monarchy. A public-serving monarchy. So Albert becomes president for the Society of Improving the Condition of the Labouring Classes. Mm-hmm. So taking an interest in social reform, meets with uh, Lord Ashley, who did a lot of work, um, sort of improving the lives of workers and particularly children and he also gets her out of the city so Victoria quite likes the cities and the dances and the entertainments Albert ugh, doesn't like any of that sort of yeah. stuff so they move to the countryside that's why they purchase <coughs> Osborne House Balmoral out oh, in the country right. good clean air good living what about Sandringham was that a, um, was that always there yeah Sandringham as well okay go off to. Um, so no more the party. Another thing he tries to deal with is what he calls her scenes. Right. Because although very loving relationship, she is still a tempestuous Hanoverian. Mm. And they quarrel. Unfortunately, of course, Albert isn't quite so tempestuous. What happens is that Victoria would cry and scream and shout, and Albert would just infuriate her by walking away and then writing a letter telling her of all the things that she did wrong and how she got too cross and it wasn't his fault. Which always goes down well (laughs) in domestic (laughs) arguments. I'm going to try that. You should try some of these words. In 1859, he wrote to her from, you know, like the next room. <laughs> so, it's just got this image. They're probably in the... When they're next the to the desk. Yeah, they well, probably pass it to yeah. the private secretary. Yeah, to it post. goes all around. Yeah. So 1859, he wrote to her, You have again lost your self-control, quite unnecessarily. I did not say a word which could wound you, and I did not begin the conversation, but you had followed me about and continued it from room to room. Mm. And we can also see a bit of a negative sort of, not exactly sinister, but slightly recollecting the relationship between Conroy and her mother, because he gradually makes her sort of ashamed of her behaviour and looks to reduce the storms, and she accepts it because... She sees him as her intellectual superior. She tries to make herself better. So it's indeed she wrote in her journal. I feel how sadly deficient I am, and how oversensitive and irritable, and how uncontrollable my temper is when annoyed and hurt. Have I improved as much as I ought? I fear not. Again and again I have conquered this susceptibility, have formed the best of resolutions, and again it returns to the annoyance of that most perfect of human beings, my adored husband. So what were Albert's faults? Do we know of his, any of his faults? Oh, we, no, we, well, she said, um, my uh, most perfect of human beings mm-hmm. doesn't have any faults. Mm-hmm. So we can see, in a way, he's undermining this vivacious, headstrong girl that, you know, stood up to Conroy, lit up the court, refused to lose her independence. Yeah. She's sort of gone from being Elizabeth I to sort of Mary II of William and Mary. That's really true. That's a great analogy, yeah. So we've really lost that spirited yeah. young girl that we had early on. Oh dear. 
So, as Greville said, you know, he's sort of keen to all intents and purposes. The thing with Victoria is that she's dominated by this lack of a father figure. Mm. So Conroy was a malevolent figure. Mm. Uh, mentor in Melbourne, mm. genial prime minister. And then we've got those sort of the wriggles of Albert. We kind of have this sort of arrested development of Victoria because she's still got this sort of childlike sense of needing to be better, needing to improve, needing approval from but a strong only male figure. But because a strong male figure keeps telling you she needs to. But again, so she's sort of, she's looking to it. So like with Melbourne, mm. she so completely just went along with everything he said, couldn't yeah. bear to be torn away. Then it's Albert. She's kind of always craving that looking. Yeah. So she's not quite become her own woman mm. yet. Mm. But she's going to. Right. Because Albert, getting a bit weary. 1853, the Crimean War, a uh, war with Russia. Um, Albert supported Aberdeen's attempts, Lord Aberdeen, the Prime Minister, to have peace. And he opposed Palmerston, who wanted war. And this made Albert very unpopular, to the extent that there were widely r- believed rumours that he was a Russian spy and had been imprisoned in the Tower of London. What? It got so bad that Parliament actually felt the need to pledge its confidence in him. Really? Mm. And he had an excessive workload. He's always on duty, travelling up and down the country, giving speeches, laying foundations, becoming the patron to all these charities. And, of course, he's doing all this work as well. He reads and summarises, basically, all these state papers for Victoria. Right. So he reads them all, picks out the key points, and then gives them to her. So sort of everything that comes to Victoria sort of goes to Albert, and then he has to go through it all again. Right. How how old is he here? Um, well, I mean, he's the same age as Victoria, so he's sort of into his um, sort of 30s, right. getting on for 40 mm. now. And um, even the, uh, the Crimea, he's, despite the fact he's so unpopular, he's still doing lots of things. Write 50 volumes of memoranda for things he thinks they ought to be doing, and strategies right. and plans, and all sorts of things. Mm. Incredibly hard-working, that's what he lives on, that's mm. all he does. But he's lonely. He misses Stockmar, Baron Stockmar is back in Germany, retiring, an old man, his old mentor. Robert Peel dies in 1850, who he's good friends with. Duke of Wellington finally dies in 1852. That's been a long while coming, though. An old, old man gets a state funeral, well-deserved. Mm. 1858, his favourite and eldest daughter, indeed eldest child, um, Vicky, leaves England for Germany, and she becomes empress. And um, they were sort of an intellectual match in the way that Victoria never could be. What was her name again? Uh, Vicky. So she's oh, Victoria as well, but she's known as Vicky. So he's very sad when she leaves. He's hit hard also by the deaths of his Portuguese cousins, King Pedro and Prince Ferdinand, in 1861. So as he himself noted, I am fearfully in want of a true friend and counsellor. Why is he related to all the kings and queens of Europe already? I thought it was Victoria who did this. Well, there's a little bit even before that, but obviously mm. Victoria really, she, yeah. really does it. In, in March 1861, Victoria's mother, the Duchess, dies. Right, how does that affect her? She is almost deranged with grief. Really, really upset. In Europe, there are rumours that she'd gone the way of George III. Wow. Such was the state. Albert carried her in his arms from the deathbed, and um, he then had to deal with all the Duchess's estates and deal with consoling Victoria, mm. who's very, very tearful for weeks and weeks and weeks. And indeed, there is something of a romantic imbalance in the relationship. You might suggest that while Victoria is besotted with Albert, he's a bit overwhelmed by the strength of her feelings. He's not quite as emotional as uh, she is, and found her emotional nature a little bit trying. Mm. It's an extent to which she's demanding a lot of him, but not giving as yeah. much back. So it's quite trying for him, and he's 
not quite as into her as she is into him. Right. Shouldn't exaggerate that. There's still obviously yes, that, but nevertheless, she isn't enough to sort of fill that loneliness. Yeah, true. That he has. So he's suffering now from all his work. He's ill health. He's always had rather weak constitution, but the overwork, his long-term health, means that he's in a bit of a decline. So 1859, he's balding. So he used to wear a wig at breakfast to keep his hat, his head uh, warm. Really? Cold days. Puffy cheeks, a little bit overweight. Because I've seen pictures of him, yeah, where he's balding, but with mm. big sideburns. Mm. We see portraits of him when he's younger, when he's 20. He's a very sort of handsome yeah. man, but he, he loses it. And he looks a lot older, but he's still, you know, he's only sort of about 40 yeah. at this point. And he gets a little bit morbid as well. He sort of has premonitions that he's not going to last. He thinks as soon as he gets a fever, that'll be it. And indeed, he says to Victoria, I do not cling to life. You do, but I set no store by it. If I knew that those I loved were well cared for, I should be quite ready to die tomorrow. I am sure if I had a severe illness, I should give up at once. I should not struggle for life. I have no tenacity. Oh, crumbs. Fury baked over around, didn't he? Indeed. <laughs> In 1861, his eldest son, Bertie, an indis- uh, a wayward son, yeah. causes a bit of an issue. Albert is informed that Bertie was keeping an actress in his student rooms at Cambridge. Now, you remember, Albert has all these hang-ups about sexual indiscretions, yeah. what with his parents, and so he storms off and wins her to confront him. And he was already a little bit unwed, caught a chill in pouring rain when inspecting buildings at Sandhurst, and he's overworked up and down the country. He catches a chill. Uh-oh. Is housebound. 30th of November, however, he has to deal with a thing called the Trent Crisis, when in America... We have the Civil War, yeah. North and South, war with each other, and Britain gets dragged in when a British ship, the Trent, was boarded and two Southern Confederate envoys on board were removed. And the President at the time, Abraham Lincoln, refused uh, British demands that they be released. So the Foreign Secretary, Lord John Russell, penned a very aggressive letter, which, as Albert noted when he read it, said, this means war. So there's a very real prospect that Britain might have joined the American Civil War on the side of the Southerners. No. Mm. On the side of the... Con- it's very much in Britain's interest to split America in half because that would seriously weaken America of course as a burgeoning power the idea of but North why would we the North because we were all about um, if we'd fr- ended the slave trade at this point <clears throat> yes so oh it's very much not in line with any of that sort of thing it's purely political that the North is sort of more politically powerful I suppose uh, right however Albert from his sickbed gets up rewrites this letter to make it much more um, what's the word to tone it down yeah much more toned down much more diplomatic in its nature a masterpiece <clears throat> as it's noted by Palmerston the Prime Minister of the time and it does the, the business war is averted but for Albert unfortunately that's pretty much his last intervention his health declines couldn't hold down his food anymore found it increasingly hard to write the doctors at the time, however, were giving out assuring messages saying everything's fine, so Victoria refused Palmerston's call for new doctors to be sent in. Because Palmerston thought this doesn't sound right. Mm. However, on the 5th of December, the doctors realised that things really had gone bad and they believed he had typhoid fever. Is this, um, is, have, uh, have modern doctors had a look at this and decided that it might well be typhoid fever? Come to that. Uh-huh. First, however, he's got to go downhill. Mm. And he does. Doctors couldn't really do anything about it at this stage. Just had to hope that he just got better. Mm. Uh, and he didn't. Um, they drugged him increasingly frequently with brandy, <laughs> which is just about the only medicine they really yeah. had that could do anything. 
Uh, he was nursed mainly by his daughter Alice, but on the 14th of December his breathing began to change. Victoria was brought in, saw him, cried, This is death! Falls onto his body, because at 42 years old, Albert was dead. That's really, really young. Really young, but he's overworked, weak health. He's just worn down. And he died of uh, brandy? <laughs> Too much brandy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Initially it was claimed to be typhoid fever, as he said, but it's now thought more likely that he had a longer-term condition. Possibly Crohn's disease, or maybe something like stomach cancer. Oh, right. The, condition, the symptoms from previous years mm. suggest that he was already ill, so it's more likely that his body had been weakened and weakened, and that it was probably just a fatal bout of pneumonia that finished right. him off, and okay. he just didn't have it yeah. in him to fight it off. Mm. But, 1861... Albert, King Albert, in all but name, is dead. And Victoria is going to have to deal with it alone. Poor old Vicky. That is where we're going to leave it for part one. Okay. Victorian biography. It's a good point to leave because it's a massive change that will come after this. Of course, it's really part two is the Victoria that I think we have in mind. This sort of older, plumper woman in black, very serious, grieving. Yeah, yeah. And what's the split in time here? She's been queen for... Uh, she's been queen for, what's that, 24 years. Oh, so there's majority of it. Indeed, and she's... This is about half of her life. She was a surprise so far. Mm. Mm. So, of course, let us know what you think of her so far, but that is where we are going to leave it. With okay. Albert dead and Victoria to react. Yeah, see you next time. We'll see you next time. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details.